exactly how. Looking at Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives us a command, and he tells us, do not be alarmed. He, he says all of the things that could happen, and uh, we're reminded of that in the storms that happened on, I guess that would have been uh, late uh, Saturday or Friday evening into Saturday morning, uh, particularly in Kentucky. Uh, some some numbers are saying maybe the largest or fastest wind speeds. I think some wind speeds were recorded at 305 mile an hour. There was debris in the atmosphere up to almost 40,000 feet. A massive storm out of really out of nowhere. I mean, they knew bad storms were coming, and in a sense, it's uh, that's a parable of our of life, isn't it? Out of nowhere, massive storms come. Out of nowhere tragedy strikes out of nowhere hardship comes and it's devastating if you look at the if you look at some drone pictures or aerial photography of Mayfield Kentucky I don't know I think that that town had about 10,000 uh, people that lived there that place looks like someone's put their hand on a sand castle and just raked it completely down to nothing it's a parable of our lives and how are we to live through those seasons how do we make it through those seasons and do what Jesus said do not be alarmed don't be filled with anxiety don't be filled with fear Jesus gives us that command and then we looked at John the vision God gave him looking into Revelation 4 and 5 this vision of God on his throne in heaven and then we looked at the instructions we began looking at the instructions that Peter gave uh, these elect exiles. So this is really part two of the message that we began last week. Chosen and preserved elect exiles. Peter says here, we're going to begin reading in verse number three, down through verse number nine. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Remember we talked for just a, a little while last Sunday morning about where we really anchor and root our assurance. When Peter writes this letter to these exiles that are exiled because of their faith in Christ, their faith in Christ has meant that they have had to flee the towns that they were living in because of anti-Christ persecution. And so when Peter writes to encourage these exiles, he wants them to root their hope not in what they have done, 
but in what Christ has done. And really, when you call someone to rejoice, or when you describe someone as being filled with joy, inexpressible, and full of glory, the only way you get to that place where even in the midst of devastation there is this joy is when it is anchored not in your work, but in Christ's work for you, which originated not when you were born, but before you were ever thought of in the hearts and minds of your parents. Look at how Peter describes this hope that we have. And we'll just be here for just a moment. But in verse number 3, he describes this hope. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. He begins with this note of praise again because he is rooting his hope and his comfort and his assurance in what God has done for us in Christ. Peter is living in light of who God is. And he's writing this letter in light of God's work of salvation for these chosen exiles. Think about, the, think about those two words put together. Chosen Exiles. There's a term for words that are mashed together, but they don't go together. It's kind of an oxymoron. It really doesn't. Chosen, yet rejected. Rejected by this world, but received by who? By God through Christ. So he wants them to understand. I think so often that the reason we have such deep issues with anxiety and fear, and I'm talking to me, is because we tend to look at our lives as if it's in this little snow globe. And that's all it is. It's just us in this snow globe of problems. And we don't recognize that outside of that, there is a good, faithful Father who has rescued us and will be faithful no matter what may come. We tend to get isolated and focused on the one thing. And Peter is pulling back and living in light of who God is and what God has done for him. Notice what he says. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Let me ask you this question. What do you attribute it to the fact that you are a child of God? What do you attribute it to? What caused that? What caused you to believe? What caused you to embrace the truth of the gospel? What caused you to repent and trust in Christ by faith? What caused that? Well, Peter tells us here, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. God is the originator of our salvation. We didn't start it. Let me ask you this morning. Now think deeply with me for a second. How many of us here this morning that are physically alive caused ourselves to be physically alive? None of us. None of us. You were acted on and you were born Jesus tells Nicodemus, I tell you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And he immediately has this question, how in the world I'm a grown man? How can I enter my mother's womb again? 
And he says, you, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? The wind blows where it will. And his, the, the idea he's getting at with Nicodemus is this is not something you can do, Nicodemus. Every one of us here this morning that believe are here because of the grace of God. We were dead and what are we now? We're alive. We were blind, but what now? We see we were deaf, but we hear. We were rebels, and now what are we? Adopted children, rescued by the grace of God according to His great mercy. And no matter what may happen in your life, everything after that is a mercy from God, isn't it? He's taken care of the biggest issue, so there's really no reason for us to be distraught. And yet, how often do I find myself exactly where David was yesterday, griping about limbs in my yard when there are people picking up two-befores from their houses? I don't think you were alone in that, David. I think we all find ourselves there, don't we? We get so focused on that one thing, and we forget about the grace of God in our lives. The question we should all ask is why would God save sinners like us? See, our salvation didn't begin with us making a choice. It began in the eternal counsel of God. So why would he save me? Why would he rescue me? That's the question. Listen to what Paul tells Titus. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How many could identify with what Paul tells Titus? We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions, passing our days in malice and envy, hating and being hated. How many of us can, you, re, you see yourself in that? Is that not who we were? And yet now we have been invited into the family of God. Foolish, disobedient, what changed that? What changed that? Did we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make certain resolutions that we're going to be better this year? Is that how you were brought out of the darkness into the light? Does anyone know how long the average, we're not here yet, but New Year's resolutions, do you know how long they last on average? Well, I mean, how long do yours last? About a week. Three weeks is about the average. We make it three weeks. And there are honestly people, one of the reasons they struggle so much with, ass with assurance and how they stand before God is they actually believe they pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. They did it. I got better. I made myself right. I made some promises. I determined to not do this and do that. Now, I would ask the question, who this morning would be so arrogant, and no offense, but ignorant, to stand up and say, I did this. We were dead. 
We were hopeless. We were slaves. We didn't set ourselves free. We were set free. And we were set free by the one who is able to keep us. That's where our assurance is. That's how we're able to live and not be in a constant state of alarm. Paul says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, when the light of the gospel broke into our lives and opened our eyes, then we were rescued. Goodness and loving kindness appeared to us, sinners of the worst kind. This is so clearly seen in the parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son comes home, where does he come home from? Where has he been? In the hog pen, feeding the pigs. He is destitute. He is to the point of starving. He is doing a job he would never have done, never thought he would have done before. Has anyone here this morning ever done something you thought you would never do? I would say we all have. And I would say we all have because we're all sinners. And what kind of sinners are we? Very good, Delmas. Delmas is speaking for all of us. What did you say again? What kind of sinners are we? We're the worst kind of sinners. We're the worst kind of sinners. But how did God meet us? How did he meet us when we heard that good news of the gospel and we turned and ran to Jesus? How were we met? Were we met by a finger in the face and a lecture? Or were we met by loving kindness and mercy? We were met by loving kindness and mercy a thousand times greater than we could have even asked for. Remember, the son has this this basically speech he's prepared. Just let me come home and be a slave, and Dad, I will never do anything like this again. And before he finishes the speech, the dad has robed him in this robe of reconciliation. He's got shoes on his feet and a ring on his finger. This, my son, was dead but is alive, let's throw a party in honor of the one who has caused so much pain and sorrow. That's how we were received. Now, if you were received like that child of God at your worst, how much does your father love and care for you now? See, I don't think we think like that. We tend to think that we've done so much and wandered so far that there's no way that he's going to receive me. And I tell you that he will receive all of those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus, no matter how dark your sin may be. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus doesn't reluctantly save us. He welcomes us with open arms. He saves us, notice He says, according to his own mercy, not according to what we deserve. Now, Peter describes this as a living hope. In a world marked by disease, death, divorce, division, anger, strife, fighting, Peter says we have a living hope. That word, listen to this definition. The word hope means expectation of good. A joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Now, how many of us here this morning, if we will be really honest, live expecting good? (laughs) What do we live expecting? Yes, we live expecting the worst. Sometimes we try to encourage people with these great words of wisdom. It could be worse. 
As if that's a great comfort. Because when they hear that, they think, oh, so it can go further down than I am? Could be worse. No, see, Peter says we have a living hope. We have a living expectation of good. We have a living expectation that not only have we been saved, but we will be saved. Not only have we borne the image of the earthly man, we will bear the image, Paul says, of the heavenly man. We live with that expectation because we live with our minds saturated with the gospel. Or that is our goal. We have a living hope. We don't just have hope in the time of death. We don't just have hope when we die. We actually have hope right now. Right now. Do you believe that? See, these exiles, as they have had to kind of uh, go to the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire to escape persecution, Peter wants them to understand, you not only have hope in the day of judgment, you have hope right now in Christ. So we need to believe that the good news of the gospel, Jesus is with us, he is for us, he won't forsake us, every plan he intends for us, he will accomplish, he will not fail in one of his purposes toward his children, and in that we rejoice. And you might say, well, Stacy, if, if his purpose toward me is good right now, I can't see it. Of course you can't, because we are children do our children understand some of the things they have to go through? Do they understand when they're six months old and they have an infection that they've either got to get a shot or take that nasty medicine? Do they understand that? Of course not. So what do they do or what should they do? They should trust their parents. They should trust the doctor. They should rest in his good purposes. We are children. We cannot see. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Corinth. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. You, do you ever feel that? Our outer self is wasting away. We are born and we are dying. Do you ever feel that? I, it's okay, it doesn't matter. I asked Tracy the other day, I said, so do you like the beard? And she said, well, it's white. <laughs> Not really an answer. It is white. I looked at a picture the other day with just a goatee, and it wasn't white. It was pretty dark. Some of you all remember when I had hair. But see, the outer man is wasting away. We're dying. That is the truth. We're not certain of what the next hour will hold. We're not certain a tornado next week won't level our homes. We're not certain we will gather in this structure next week. We have no assurance of that. We do have this assurance, though, that whatever God purposes in our lives is ultimately good, and in that we rejoice. Paul says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, notice this, not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. I was kind of, I don't know if I've heard this somewhere before or not, but it just hit me like a lightning bolt a couple of Sundays ago. Listen to what Paul says here. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. How many have ever heard, I come to worship to be refilled? Have you heard that? Okay, I don't think that's a good way to think about it. We don't come to, we don't come to worship to be refilled. We come to worship to be reminded. See, I don't need to be filled again. If I'm in Christ and he's in me and I have all of the Holy Spirit, I don't need to be filled again. I need to be reminded of these truths. Isn't that right? See, we don't look at the things that are seen, but it's so hard in our lives not to. So God in his mercy has said, gather weekly so that you can be what? Reminded of these truths, reminded of the promises of God, reminded of the faithfulness of God, reminded of his eternal purposes, reminded of his sovereignty. When we're reminded of those things, guess what happens? We don't lose heart. We don't give up. We don't quit. We don't despair. We keep pressing on even though where we are now is difficult because we're not focused on exactly right where we are. wish Zach was here. I've used him as just an example a hundred times. Do we have any marathon runners here this morning? David's ran half marathon, right? Okay. When did you first start thinking about quitting? Yes. Wow. Okay. So when did you first start thinking this was too much in your training? Okay, now when you're planning to run 13 miles, they say half marathon. 13 miles is a full marathon for normal people. That's a marathon. If you get your mind on your pain while you're training for that or while you're running, you will quit if you can't get your mind somewhere else. You will quit. Because in your mind, your mind is going to be coaching you to do what? Stop. It hurts. You don't have to hurt like this. You don't have to put up with this. You can quit anytime. That is the constant battle in Christianity. Why don't you just quit? Why don't you give up? Why do you keep preaching? Why do you do that? Why do you teach that Sunday school class? Why are you still praying for that? Why don't you just quit? And if we only focus on what we can see, we will quit. But if our vision is full of what we cannot see, these eternal promises of God, we will be able to endure in the midst of the most difficult tragedy, most difficult situations in life if we focus on what we cannot see. If we are reminded of these, these truths, so Paul says we have a, Peter says we have a living hope. Then he says we have an imperishable inheritance. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. An imperishable inheritance. Now think for a second. Why would he use the word imperishable? Why would he use that word? Because everything here is perishable. Everything here is perishable. Everything here is defiled. Everything here is fading away. Everything here is corrupt. Everything. See, 
these chosen exiles will be tempted to find their security in what they can see, but our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. Imperishable means not subject to decay or corruption. Our bodies are perishing. Our families are perishing. Some of us this year at Christmas, there will be somebody not at the table. They often say those first holidays after someone who has always been a part of your life is gone, it's very difficult, isn't it? It's difficult. There's a place at that table that was theirs. There's a plate that was theirs. They had that seat. Our families, in a sense, are perishing. They're dying. All of these things are temporary. One of these days you're going to live to where life is a burden where life is just a difficulty. But we are promised a land where none of those things are true. Is this not an unbelievable thought that all of our loved ones who died in Christ are safe with him right now and one of these days we will gather together and none will be missing and we will be safe and rejoice forever and ever and ever. And that, when you set your mind on that, you're able to get through. See, we're headed toward a land where all of the bad is going to be made right. All of God's children are going to inherit an imperishable land, imperishable bodies, imperishable minds, imperishable vitality. You know, one of the hard things as you watch people, where can you first tell that people have sort of lost their passion for life? Where is it first evident when you look at them? Their eyes. What is it about their eyes? They're empty. They're empty. You look at them and you can just see that life that was there. It's just not there. That passion, that person you knew at 50 that was so full of life, even at that advanced age, now I'm now, 30, 40 years later, that, that same person, it seems like they wake up and they just endure another day. It's almost as if they're waiting to die. That, that's how life is here. But that same person that's in that situation right now that has their hope in Christ, the moment they stop living here, what is the promise? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We don't die in defeat, we die in victory. And we have hope even in the face of that enemy. This is how we rejoice. Our inheritance is not only imperishable, it's undefiled. The word for undefiled, it means pure. It, it, it's absolutely pure. Now, all of life here has been corrupted since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Everything is corrupted. Our relationships, our homes... Our churches, all of those things are defiled. And you know why they're defiled? Why are relationships hard? Why are they difficult? Because we're sinners. And have you ever hurt somebody deeply that you loved, but, but your fallenness just really, really, you just did some stupid, selfish stuff? Have you ever done that? Have you ever been the cause of deep hurt that the truth is you really didn't mean, but you did? That's life here, isn't it? That's life here. That's the way that it is. What will it be like there where there's none of that? 
where there's no, yes, I forgive you, but gosh, I just can't let that go. Do you have somebody that, that you wounded and now it's just awkward? Do you have that? What will it be like after 10 million years, no awkward situations with anybody? Always glad-hearted thanksgiving when we see each other. Always a genuine embrace. Always this rejoicing in the goodness of God. Nothing to forget, nothing to forgive. Won't that be heaven? See, that's what's kept for us. Undefiled will not ever be changed. Our inheritance is unfading. Unfading. Everything here fades. It's the process of becoming less less bright, less clear. In that land, life will never lose its luster. And then notice he says, it's kept in heaven for you, preserved safe forever. So ask yourself, child of God, if this is your inheritance, why is it that when your what you have and you can see in front of you here seems to sort of fade or disappear or you lose it? Why is that such a disruptive thing? Why is that? It's because those things have become more precious. And if we will, what's the song we sing? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And of course, when we understand these things, Peter says we are filled with inexpressible joy. Inexpressible joy. This is the birthright of the children of God. And I'll be honest with you, including your pastor, I don't know a lot of us that are seem to be filled with inexpressible joy. Do you think I am? I told somebody the other day, and I said, I said, you know, somebody said one time I was unapproachable. And they said, well, I don't think you're unapproachable. You're serious, but you're not unapproachable. I'm not as serious as you think. But life has a way of just kind of, you just kind of learn to, I just got to embrace the mess I'm in. It won't always be this way. Stacy told us on Sunday, heaven's kept safe for us. So I'm good. And we kind of get through like that. When I think what Peter is talking about is this understanding that erupts in this confidence in God, in this hope, in this peace, in this irrepressible joy. The scripture says that Christ, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Inexpressible joy. Look at verse number 5. He says, who by God's power are being guarded. The word for guarded here, it literally means this, to guard or protect by a military guard, either to prevent hostile invasion or to keep the inhabitants of a besieged city from flight. It also means watching and guarding to preserve one for the attainment of something. Notice that definition, to guard or protect by a military guard, either to prevent hostile invasion We are being kept. Are there enemies around us? Absolutely. Do we have opposition in the world? Absolutely. And every bit of that is in the hand of God and he will keep us 
through it all. But do you know who our worst enemy is? Why do you think that definition includes to keep the inhabitants of a besieged city from flight? Who is our worst enemy? We are. I am. The conversations I have with myself where I'm convincing myself how bad it is, how dark it is, how hopeless it is, how broken it is. When I'm talking to myself, if it weren't for the faithfulness of God, we all would abandon the faith. That's just the truth. You would leave because this road gets very difficult. But not only are we being guarded outside, we are being kept inside. Isn't that true? On your worst day, isn't there still this ember of, I know God's in control. I know he's working this for good. Now, sometimes it's just barely, barely burning. But it's there, isn't it? And isn't that the reason that you haven't quit yet? Isn't that the reason you still got your eyes on Jesus? And who do you attribute that flame still burning to? Who gets the credit for that? God does. He started this. He started a good work in me. And he will do what? Finish it. He started. I'm the master of starting stuff and not finishing it. I can half finish any project you have. He never stops his faithful, persistent, loving work in the lives of his children to get us home, and it's why we rejoice. You don't have enough gas in the tank to get home. You don't have enough resources. You don't have enough ability. You don't have enough strength. But thanks be to God you don't have to. He does. Isn't that good news? That's why we rejoice. That's why we don't lose heart. See, since God is keeping us, we need not fear or worry. The Christian life isn't about you rising up to meet the challenges. Do you want me to tell you some advice to never give someone, especially a Christian, you can do this, you've got it. Now, we say that, and I've said it with good intentions. But you know what's better to say? God's got this, right? See, if God's got it, even if my hope dies, everything's still safe and secure. Even if the answer is no, everything's still safe and secure. Even if the very thing I'm so anxious about happens, everything is safe and secure. Everything. See, that's, that's why we rejoice. That's why we don't lose heart. Don't, don't tell people, you've got it. Tell your brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I know this, God's got this and God's got you. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. No need to worry. I told somebody the other day, the only people who have any right in this world as messed up as it is to live with any kind of hope and peace and assurance are the children of God. Nobody else has a right to. They can't. Because what are they building on? Sand. And their house will crumble, but not the children of God. God is faithful. He will preserve. He will keep us. Even though we are prone to wonder, God will be faithful and merciful. Part of God's mercy is not giving us everything we want. 
If God gave us everything we wanted, what would we do? We would leave him. Part of God's mercy is keeping us in a situation we would rather not be in. Why would he do that? Why does he tell Paul no? Because he wants Paul to learn with this thorn, my grace is sufficient. Uh, God doesn't have to get us out of a situation to preserve us. As a matter of fact, most often he preserves us in it. And we learn in it to trust him. He's a good father. He goes on to say, in this you rejoice. Look at verse number, I think that's verse number six. In this you rejoice. What is the this that causes them to rejoice? It is the work of God for them. Peter says we're born again to a living hope. We're born again to an imperishable inheritance. We are kept by God. It's thoughts like these that cause Paul to proclaim in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He explodes with this rejoicing in what God has done. I'm just about done. Listen to, he says, in this you rejoice, though now... Verse number six, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I want you to notice that. For a little while. Now, a little while. How long is a little while? Well, I think we're supposed to look at that in light of eternity. Some of you here this morning have struggled and suffered for decades. Decades. Is 20 years a little while? Yes and no. It's not a little while here. 20 years is a long time. What is 20 years in comparison to 10 million? It's a blink of an eye. It's a moment. It, it, it's, it's almost insignificant. It's just this moment. It's just this one, it's just one chapter in the book. Jade, you like to read, right? You generally don't read three chapters in a 30-chapter book and I know the story, I'm done. No, you read the story. And the dark chapters are what cause you to exult and rejoice when the story, when the story is made well, it's made right. We rejoice. It's the same thing for the dark chapters of our lives. Far from causing us to quit, they will be the source of our deepest joy when we make it home. Because it will be those places. It'll be those years of frustration. It'll be those years of agony. It'll be those years of the process of dying. It'll be that cancer diagnosis that never was better. It will be those things. It will be the fibromyalgia. It'll be the questions that we don't have answers for. It'll be the things that have plagued us all of our lives will be the source of our greatest rejoicing when we get home. So we don't lose heart. We don't give up. We don't quit. This is just part of the story. For a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Church, we need to be very merciful and kind to each other. We don't know what we're each dealing with. We don't. We don't know. And it's very easy 
to kind of just assume we know when we don't. And if someone's short with you, it probably ain't about you. Probably something on their mind they got to deal with this week at work, and they're just minds in a different place. We got to be merciful and kind to each other. We got to help each other bear burdens, even when we're unaware, even when we don't know. Counting is still shows, doesn't it? You don't have to ask somebody if they're struggling. Look at them. Look at them. You can tell most of the time. He says, and this you rejoice, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, the tested genuineness of your faith. How do you know your faith is genuine? How do you know that? Some of you here this morning may not. I'll tell you how I know my faith is genuine. is because I still have it. And I don't still have it because I'm good, smart, moral, or a pastor. I still have it because he has proven himself faithful through every trial. And he has preserved me. That's how I still have it. When your faith has come through the grinder, when, when everything you thought would happen fell apart, when every dream you had, when, when you have been abandoned, when you have been rejected, when you have walked through the fire and you come through the other side and your confidence is still in him, guess what you know? Your faith is genuine and you need to know that. You need to know that. If you're here this morning, child of God, and you've walked through the fire, you ought to count it a mercy from God that he has shown you that he is your father, you're his child. You know that because you've been through the fire. You've been tested. He said it's more precious than gold. It may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, see the trial is not meant to destroy you. The trial is meant to bring praise and honor and glory and rejoicing to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, uh, son, you get a song ready, please. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Think about that. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You haven't seen him. That's true of all of us here this morning that are children of God, isn't it? We haven't seen him, and yet he is precious to us. He is our life. He is where we look to for life. We haven't seen him, but we love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We don't now see him. Yet we believe. See, when Jesus says, do not be alarmed, what he's calling us to is to not be ignorant of the world we're living in. He's not saying, bury your head in the sand. He's not saying, pretend like it's not happening. He's saying, do not be alarmed because you have been born again to a living hope. Your faith is being guarded and kept. This trial 
is going to increase God's glory and your confidence in him. And in the end, what you're going to obtain is the salvation of your souls. In this, we rejoice. In this. If you're here this morning, child of God, and you're walking through deep waters, number one, don't try to do that alone. I promise you, there are people in this church that want to come alongside of you and not give you answers about everything, but just walk with you. Grieve when you grieve, weep with you, and rejoice with you. Don't walk through that alone. But even more important, don't walk through where you are with your eyes only focused on what you can see. You remember these truths concerning God, and you remember that in eternity past, God set his love on you, and he is going to get you safely home. In this, we rejoice. We can't see now, but we know we're going to make it home. In this, we rejoice. And if you're here this morning and you don't have this kind of hope, Come to Jesus. He is a faithful Savior of sinners, of the worst kind. And he would adopt you and put you in the family today. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. Let's stand and let's sing. Go ahead, son.